Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be talking to Eric C. Miller, who is the editor of this uh, new volume, The Rhetoric of Religious Freedom in the United States. The book is published by Lexington Books. Uh, Eric, how are you doing today? I'm great, Heath. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Such an interesting book um, and, and such a timely book as well. Uh, a lot of very interesting scholars putting things together. Before we get to all of the interesting uh, work in the book, uh, maybe you can share just a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm an assistant professor of communication studies at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. It is one of 14 universities in the Pennsylvania state system of higher education. I've been here for five years, and prior to that, I spent five years in the Department of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State University, University Park, um, where I completed a PhD. So for about the past 10 years, I've been working in the field of rhetoric and communication and specifically interested in religious political rhetoric in the United States. Great. Um, this book covers um, a lot of material, and I want to talk about how you put it together. But I wanted just to start with the way you started the book, which is to situate the subject in the Constitution. Uh, I wonder if you could briefly summarize that argument that you make about, about the Constitution and, and kind of the, the historical controversies over religious freedom. What's, what's come before the work that you put together? Well, yeah, I tried to open the book with a somewhat extensive literature review of how religious freedom has been treated in a variety of fields, including history, law, sociology, political science, and pretty much all of those go back to the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, and the Free Exercise Clause. A lot of people celebrate the First Amendment to the Constitution as sort of the the first freedom and suggest that religious freedom is sort of foundational in that respect because it comes first in the Bill of Rights alongside free speech, free press, freedom of assembly, that it has a unique and special importance to the nation um, and that it sort of provides a foundation for a lot of other important freedoms. Um, So I don't necessarily endorse that view entirely, but I do recognize its importance and I try to give a a pretty strong summary of how other scholars in other fields have dealt with it, especially in recent years. So you also write, (coughs) excuse me, at the start of the book, and I'll quote, Uh, If it is true that religious freedom rhetoric has been embraced for its stabilizing potential during a tumultuous time, then it must also be observed that this potential has yet to be fully realized. What do you mean by this exactly? What is the the, um, stabilizing potential and, and why has that not been fully realized? Well, I had gotten into studying Christian right rhetoric in particular because it seemed to me that there was a shift underway in the latter half of the 20th century in the way that Christian right figures spoke about public issues. Um, Specifically, the shift was going from an explicitly religious, often condemnatory rhetoric about sin and vice 
to one that was more focused on liberal values such as freedom and rights and things like that. Um, Andrew Lewis, the uh, professor at the University of Cincinnati, um, has a new book out on this that I think covers that ground really thoroughly. Um, so, yeah, it was on the podcast just a couple weeks ago. Right, Sorry, yeah. a couple months ago, back in the fall. Yeah, I heard that. So um, the uh, the idea here is that liberal rhetoric in particular, including religious freedom rhetoric, um, offers Christian right figures sort of a common ground to stand upon and to create coalitions with non-religious figures. In other words, we are endorsing or we are opposing same-sex marriage, or we are opposing uh, contraception, healthcare coverage, um, not because God said so, but because we are doing so in defense of religious freedom, which is a core foundational American value. Um, and therefore, even if you don't hold the same religious views as us, um, you can at least recognize that we are standing up for this document that is of foundational importance to all of our rights, and therefore maybe you all can get on board with us. Um, so it's a means of reaching out, of creating coalitions, and bringing stability to public debates um, in that way. Now, this is an uh, edited volume, uh, uh, primarily communication scholars. Um, how did you put this group together? Um, and, and maybe you can sort of speak broadly about the topics that are covered in the various chapters of the book. Well, this project came together in stages. I think this is somewhat common for, for projects like this. I initially put together a day-long seminar to be held before our annual conference, the National Communication Association Convention in the fall of 2016. And for that, I brought together a bunch of papers and people to come and present them um, at that event. I invited them to submit chapter proposals for a, a book. Uh, several of them did. Um, I sent out a national call for papers on our listserv to, to supplement the rest of the text. Other people responded and sent in proposals. I made a selection based on the ones that I received. And um, ultimately, it was kind of a self-selecting process. I had wanted this book to be a comprehensive history of religious freedom rhetoric in the United States since the founding, but the chapters self-selected a, a contemporary focus. People didn't want to write about the 1800s. They were very much interested in events that have been in the news in the past 15 or 20 years. Now, now one of those chapters, um, uh, the first chapter of the book is by Cody Hawley. And, and several others of uh, chapters focus on this, this tendency that you described to talk about religious disputes in the language of rights and freedom. Um, but, but you suggest that this may be, while it may be helpful to advocates to, to frame things in these ways, it may be destructive to democratic norms and may produce forms of polarization. Um, how is this the case exactly? And, and what about this rights talk is potentially harmful? Well, whenever you frame an issue as having importance to freedom and rights, you are tapping into these core American values. And if you suggest that your core American values are being violated in some way, there is always the tendency to create a sort of zero-sum game. So it's no longer the case that we have a legitimate disagreement about this thing or that Perhaps um, one set of values is in conflict with another, and there there may be some grounds for compromise. It's it's you're violating my rights, and therefore what you are doing is illegitimate or unlawful um, or oppressive, and therefore must be stopped. So uh, Cody's argument is that 
by framing things in the language of freedom and rights, um, we are drawing really sharp boundaries and setting ourselves off into tribes and that the potential for democratic deliberation, compromise, consensus is being sacrificed along the way. And I think the argument is pretty well made. Yeah, this is very similar to the to the argument uh, that was made by Liliana Mason, who was on the podcast just a couple of uh, weeks ago with the idea of social sorting. Um, later in the book, uh, one of the authors focuses on what is called flipping the script uh, in a way to position religious conservatives as vulnerable minorities. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about this, this idea of, of flip, uh, script flipping and um, about the use of rhetoric to create new categories of victims and, and even religious martyrs. Sure. Well, that sort of falls in the same line as, as, as Cody's argument. When we use the language of freedom and rights in this way, we create strong boundaries, we create opposing sides, and we situate ourselves in positions of conflict. And then the winner of any given conflict um, is usually decided uh, based on who is the, the victim and who the oppressor, or at least that's the way the framing sets it up. So in many cases, um, conservatives who have traditionally been the, or who have traditionally had the upper hand in these sorts of exchanges, um, end up sort of trying to flip the script and situate themselves as the victims in any given exchange. So for instance, for, for the latter half of the 20th century, it was very common to hear Christian right figures like Jerry Falwell or Pat Buchanan uh, talk about gay lifestyles in really nakedly abusive terms. Um, Falwell said that 9-11 happened because the U.S. was too accepting of homosexuals. Buchanan had blamed the, the AIDS crisis on, or he had suggested that it was God's retribution on gay people. Um, of course, there was the whole thing with Anita Bryant, and this was very common. But then around the turn of the 20th, 21st century, when public opinion began to shift pretty dramatically in favor of um, gay rights and, and then same-sex marriage, those sorts of arguments just didn't fly anymore. So you could no longer go on TV and, and make these sorts of claims and expect them to be accepted by a broad swath of the, of the public. If you wanted to win enough people to your side in order to build winning electoral coalitions, you have to point out the ways that the culture is oppressing you. And of course, the, the religious freedom argument has been very often used in this way to suggest that no, it is not we, you know, conservative Christians who are bullying the, the gay community. Um, it is they who are bullying us and trying to sort of force us to condone their deviant lifestyle. All we want to do is live and let live and, and practice our faith in our churches and the way we run our businesses. Um, and this, you know, culture is trying to take that away from us. Um, so in order to win an argument based on that sort of rights framing, um, it is necessary to show how your rights are being violated rather than how maybe you are violating someone else's. Now, this relates to the, the chapter that you write. You're not just the editor. You're also one of the chapter authors. You write this chapter about the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts and, and the way in which they have been adopted in, or not adopted in different states. I wonder if you could talk about that, that chapter that uh, is based on your own research. Sure. Um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, was passed at the federal level in 1993. Um, it was passed actually in response to a Supreme Court decision 
that some advocates worried would limit um, religious freedom in the United States. So the restoration in that title um, refers to a, a widely supported bipartisan bill passed in Congress that was intended to restore freedoms that had been allegedly lost to a 1990 Supreme Court decision. Um, in 1997, the Supreme Court um, overturned or, or invalidated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act at the federal level um, and basically limited its utility to the states. Um, and that's important because then in the, in the next um, 17 years or so, between 1997 and 2014, sort of a smattering of states passed Religious Freedom Restoration Acts to ensure that their citizens were protected. Um, then in, in 2014, when uh, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of um, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, basically extending religious freedom protections to for-profit businesses, um, and also issued a ruling that suggested they may be on the cusp of legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide, which it turned out they were, there were a whole new slew of these Religious Freedom Restoration Acts introduced in state houses around the country. I believe there were um, 16 introduced in 2014 alone when there had been 19 introduced in the preceding 17 years. So this influx of Religious Freedom Restoration Acts um, was pretty clearly a direct response to the alleged threat um, to religious freedom that was posed by same-sex marriage. Um, and so I was interested in how those Religious Freedom Restoration Acts were pitched to the people in those states and how their proponents tried to uh, advocate on their behalf. Um, despite introducing 16 of these acts in um, 2015, only two of them were ever actually approved by the state governments. Um, so I focus on those two in particular, um, they being Indiana and Arkansas, and um, how, their, how their proponents um, pitched them to the people and what sorts of arguments they used um, in order to to justify them, yeah, and and you know, in in short, what was the what was the uh, strategic uh, rhetoric that was used to to advance uh, these bills? Well, the the first one to to sort of go on the on the table was Indiana under the stewardship of of then Governor, now Vice President Mike Pence, and um, that bill received criticism from a lot of corners almost immediately because critics said that it was basically just anti-gay bigotry dressed up in the form of religious freedom. And of course, that's the, the tension that uh, exists whenever religious freedom is introduced in opposition to a, a same-sex um, rights piece of legislation. So in order to make it palpable, um, or palatable, I guess, Pence tried his best to pitch it as a bipartisan piece of legislation, as something that is non-controversial, as something that everyone should be on board with. And he did that by linking it to the federal uh, um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act from um, the early 90s. Um, when he went on television to do his press conference in support of it, he referenced the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act many times. Um, he invoked President Clinton's name many times as, a, as an endorser of it. He suggested that his state law was no different 
than the federal law, and it makes no sense for the federal law to be bipartisan and popular while his law is um, uh, partisan and unpopular. Um, so he pitched it as a non-controversial bipartisan piece of legislation, um, and he did that while also overlooking some um, important differences between his state law and um, the federal law, including the fact that his state law was being passed in direct opposition to same-sex marriage, whereas the federal law was was passed at a time long before same-sex marriage was a realistic possibility, um, and also the way that the law defined um, uh, personhood, whereas the, the federal RIFRA protected people as citizens, individual citizens, the um, Indiana RIFRA defined a person to include businesses, companies, organizations. Um, there's this whole almost comically long list of different things that qualify as a person underneath the Indiana RIFRA, meaning that there are any number of different ways that any number of different entities could deny services to same-sex couples under that bill. Now, the proponents of the bill would, would dispute that characterization, um, and they have, but ultimately the uh, the the effort was kind of futile. Um, the public did not really buy these justifications, and ultimately Mike Pence was forced to sign a fix or a correction to the bill to ensure that it could not be used to discriminate against the LGBT community. Um, his The bill's backers were very upset about that, um, and its supporters were not all that or its, its critics were not all that uh, satisfied with it. So it ended up being a situation where Indiana lost a lot of revenue because of boycotts. Mike Pence lost a lot of popularity. And in the end, very few people were, were happy with the outcome. Um, and, and that outcome also dissuaded um, Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas from signing his bill. Um, he demanded a fix uh, preemptively. Um, and then after that, none of the remaining 16 states even followed through on on the proposed acts. So at the end of 2015, um, two bills had been passed out of 16, and neither of them to the great satisfaction of their proponents. Yeah, and and yet this this uh, does not hold uh, Mike Pence back. Uh, it may have held him back from running for election in 2016, but it doesn't hold him back from becoming elected vice president. The, you've got two chapters in the book that focus specifically on, on Donald Trump. Uh, the, the chapter by Andre Johnson looks at religious freedom, um, Donald Trump, and African-American voting. Uh, I wonder if maybe we can wrap up by, by talking um, about what uh, that, that article finds and, and maybe a little bit more generally about what all of this um, discussion of religious freedom says about Donald Trump and, and also the future. Yeah, um, after the sort of the debacle with uh, Indiana Rifra, it seemed like Mike Pence's political fortunes were in decline. I certainly would not have predicted that he would end up being vice president of the United States at that time, and I, I mean, I wouldn't have predicted that Donald Trump would be president of the United States either. So, you know, what do I know? But um, Andre's article looks in particular um, at the ways that the Trump campaign um, reached out to voters. Uh, across the the race divide, how he employed religious freedom rhetoric to reach out to white audiences and to black audiences, and how successful he was at um, both of those things. Now, the religious freedom argument 
that was made towards white audiences, particularly conservative white evangelicals, was very successful. The final chapter in the book by John Edwards deals with that um, very specifically, and I think it's, it's very compelling. Um, Andre's chapter is more interested in how Trump tried to to make some inroads into the the black community. Um, Historically, Republican presidential candidates do not do very well uh, with black voters. And there was never any reason to think that Trump would do great with them. But um, he did want to make inroads into that community um, and get his numbers up a little bit higher among black voters, because sometimes that can make or break the electoral vote distribution of a a given state. Um, And as we saw in Pennsylvania, Ohio and and Michigan uh, or Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, the, uh, the the margins there among voters were pretty thin and, and the electoral votes were very significant. So um, uh, the chapter talks a little bit about how Trump reached out to um, or, or, or reached out to black voters by way of speaking to white voters, which is an, an interesting wrinkle. Um, Trump very famously went out in a series of stump speeches um, and asked the black community, you know, what do you have to lose by voting for me? The argument is that in in a lot of places, in a lot of cities like Chicago, for instance, where there is a lot of poverty and a lot of violence and where there is a history of democratic leadership um, or Detroit, uh, Trump's argument was you've been voting for Democrats for a long time and yet many of you are living in a very bad situation. So what do you have to lose? You might as well just uh, give me a shot. But um, Andre observes that noticeably Trump is very sort of crass in, in making this, in asking this question um, to some audiences um, and not to others. When Trump spoke to white audiences, um, he was very bellicose in throwing this out there. Um, and when he spoke to black audiences, he was much more subdued and, and respectful um, and never went quite so far as to say, you know, what the hell do you have to lose? Vote for me, um, which is what he said when he spoke to certain white audiences. And his argument there is that uh, Trump spoke to black audiences by way of white audiences in order to give those white audiences um, a reason uh, to believe that that Trump was sympathetic to black people, maybe more sympathetic than than he actually was. Um, and uh, the the rhetorical difference, the difference in tone when he was speaking in white space versus black space, um, is notable and uh, it's it's significant. Yeah, the the book, the entire book is is so interesting. So many interesting chapters. Uh, uh, the title again is the rhetoric of religious freedom in the United States. Uh, published by Lexington Books. The editor who you've been hearing from is Eric C. Miller. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's been a pleasure.